freedom, just the word itself, I think, evokes an emotional response from most of us. Um, we love our freedoms, especially as Americans. We fight for our freedoms. Uh, we wish that the entire world had the freedoms that we enjoy, nationally speaking. And I suppose you know, we could explore, you stop and think about freedom, there's a lot of different avenues we could take uh, when you start defining the word and looking at what freedom really is. We could look at national freedom, we could look at political freedom um, and things like that. But really what I want to get to this morning and what I want to center our thoughts around is our personal freedom in Christ and what that really means. Um, we do, we just read it, from Galatians chapter 5, we do possess freedom in Christ. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. And those words have meaning. We want to explore what those are this morning. We're going to spend a good deal of time in Galatians 5, so if you want to take your Bibles and turn there, we'll look at a few other verses along the way, but the bulk of our time is going to be spent in this chapter. Um, We all know that we're living in a society that promotes what you might call ultimate personal freedom. What do we mean by that? Self-promotion, self-love, doing your own thing, pursuing your own happiness, pursuing your own comfort, pursuing your own pleasure. These are things that we're taught from when we're little kids here in America. And the media just bombards us with these ideas that we have the right to pursue these personal freedoms. And even ideologically, we're taught in school, we're taught, you know, go after what you want. And you learn right away, obviously, that when we go after what we want individually, oftentimes that comes into conflict with either what somebody else wants or a set of laws that exists um, that will prohibit us from doing exactly what we want. I think all of us who, are, who have been in this church for any length of time and who are taught in the Word of God know that that definition of freedom to do whatever you want, whenever you want, is not um, obviously of God. It's a worldly philosophy, and we'll explore that in a moment. And when you take it to its ultimate end, even if you look at it in a um, practical point of view, if, if we all took personal freedom to its ultimate end, and we all did whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted, this, our whole society would, would break down. It would be chaos. There would be anarchy. There would be, there would be no, you know, it, it wouldn't end up the way you think it would end up. Um, I, I did this little exercise with some kids in a seventh grade class in the school, and I said, you know, if you had your own country, a little island that belonged to you, and you could make the rules, what would your rules be? Ooh, man, they, they took off and said, oh, they, I, I wouldn't have any curfews. Uh, you could eat whatever you could want. You, would, you know, and they came up with all these rules. And then we took a look at all the different rules, and they were in major conflict with each other because some people wanted it this way, some people wanted it that way. And you realize right away that you know, personal freedom has its limits. And if you exercise personal freedom to its ultimate end, um, no good comes of it. It's destruction. Destruction is its end. Destruction of society, destruction of the family, and really any human relationship that exists could not exist if we took that to its end. On the opposite end, the mandate for the body of Christ is to love one another, which is the opposite of personal freedom. You're giving up your personal freedom for the sake of another person. That's what true love is. And so we're going to look at this, uh, this idea of personal freedom balanced against uh, what God calls us to do. 
to pursue the advancement of God's work, to love God and to love one another, not pursuing our own personal agendas, but denying self for the sake of God and others. And obviously this theme is repeated throughout the New Testament. We'll be looking at that. Before we get into it, I'd like to give just a little bit of a background to the book of Galatians. And so if you're, if you're in chapter 5, just keep your finger there and we'll go backward a little bit and, and uh, work our way through just so we have some context in which to put what Paul said in chapter 5, verse 1. As Paul writes to the Galatians, he writes to them in terms of sin and law. Those words are repeated over and over again in how a man is justified before God. The people of Israel, and by extension all men, um, are described in this book as being enslaved to sin. They were trying to please God by keeping the law, but they were unable to do so. If you look in chapter 3, verse 22, look at the words that describe people. It says, The scripture has shut up all men under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. So you think of the words shut up. That's not, you know, to tell somebody to be quiet. It means you're, you're shut in, you're enclosed. And if you're under the custody of somebody, what, what idea does that give you? You're, you're imprisoned. Your freedoms are taken away by the thing that you thought was going to give it to you. The law itself ended up being a custodian and people were enslaved and entrapped by the law and by sin. Um, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it's further described, people who are apart from Christ are described as little children in society who have no rights. Actually, an heir. Now, you think of you know, some, some of the wealthiest people in the world who have children. If their children are seven years old, they may be heir to billions of dollars and properties, and, and trust funds, and, and all of this. But if they're seven years old, they can't use it yet. They don't have an adult right in society. They can't just go and buy things. They can't set up bank accounts. They can't buy cars. They can't go anywhere without permission. They don't have the rights that come, even though they're an heir to everything. And in 1 through 3, it says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he doesn't differ at all from a slave, although he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. And so he's comparing that illustration to us who are apart from Christ. If you're apart from Christ, you're like that little child. You, you, there's something that could be yours in the end, but you, you don't have access to it until you receive Christ. When Christ came... He led them into true personal freedom, which this book describes as sonship. In verses 4 through 7 of the same chapter, chapter 4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, that's Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Okay, so, so Paul's describing salvation in these terms, and it's pretty easy to understand, I think. Before you were saved, you were a slave to sin. You didn't have any choice in it. Christ came, he led you out of bondage into personal freedom in Christ, and that's what we're going to explore. What does that mean? Um, 
Since Paul had been there and had preached this gospel to them, others had come along and had upset the apple cart. And they were teaching false doctrine and were actually leading these people back to the idea that even though you got saved through faith in Christ, you now have to live according to the law. Some of us are still there, aren't we? We get saved, we believe in Jesus Christ by faith, and yet the way that we live is very legalistic. We, we, we categorize things in our lives and say, we have to live this way in order to please God. And we, and we still find ourselves in that sense. And so Paul addresses them in, in verses 8 through 11. He says, however, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back? Why go back there? If the law enslaved you in the beginning, why go back there now and live that way as a Christian? Why is it that you turn back to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I fear for you that perhaps I have, I have labored, labored over you in vain. So Paul was trying to teach them that there is true freedom in Christ. Salvation is found only in Christ, and our spiritual walk, our sanctification, can only be found in Christ by faith. And so when we come to chapter 5, verse 1, when he says it was for freedom that Christ set us free, we have some context in which to put that. He's not talking about national freedom. He's not talking about total license, where we just have freedom to do whatever we want, whenever we want. But this is freedom that's found in Christ, in the salvation that's found in him. So this morning, what I want to do is um, take you through three thoughts. One, what is freedom, what is the definition of freedom according to the world when we normally think about it? Two, what does God tell us true freedom in Christ really is? We'll take a look at the words and define it and help us to understand what that is. And then thirdly, how do we apply that to ourselves as Christians? How do we walk day by day in that? So first, what does the world think freedom is? We hear definitions all over the place. But I think the common understanding that I hear anyway, and maybe you can concur with me or disagree, whatever, is that freedom means that you, you do what you please. I have the freedom to go wherever I want, to do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. That's ultimate freedom, it's, and I think that's what people believe freedom really is. Even when it comes to the freedoms in this, in this country, I think that's the backdrop through which people you know, uh, define freedom. Being your own boss, making your own rules, looking out for yourself. Um, the definition in Webster's Dictionary fits that perfectly. Uh, the first definition in Webster's is the absence of necessity, coercion, or restraint in choice or action. And all that means is, when he says the absence of necessity, it means you don't have to do something. It's not necessary for you to do it. Secondly, coercion, nobody can force you to do it. And thirdly, restraint, there shouldn't be anything restraining you from doing whatever you want, either any choice that you make or any action that you may take. The lack or absence of necessity, coercion, or restraint in choice or action. And obviously the scriptures do not concur with this definition. It's different. What we're talking about this morning is not that. The scriptures declare, define that idea of freedom as license. And we'll take a look at the words that are used to describe that in just a moment. Um, I'd like you to keep your finger there and turn to Romans 118. And I want you to see the, the difference here. 
for those who do take this definition of personal freedom to its extreme and say, I want to do whatever I want. I'm not going to bow my will to anybody, any God, any set of rules, any law. I'm my own man. I can make my own rules. What does God say about those people? In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the last part of that verse says, those who suppress the truth, those who take the truth and they don't believe it, they don't want it, they want to do their own thing, invent their own God, as it says a little bit later in the the passage, it says that they are under the wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So those who suppress the truth in favor of their own ungodly ideas and behaviors are subject to the wrath of God. Okay, so obviously God is not in favor of our first definition here. Um, John chapter 3, verse 19. You turn there. This falls right on the heels of the well-known passage in John 3, which includes verse 16, which we quote often. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And he goes on and talks about the difference between the two, the believer and the unbeliever, and the judgment that falls. And in verse 19, he says, and this is the judgment, that light is come into the world. What was the light? The light was Jesus Christ and the truth that he taught about God. Light is come into the world, but what did men love? Darkness. Now, we don't think that our own ideas are darkness, but when you put them up against the light of truth, what we come up with on our own as a society or as an individual, as an individual, as it's opposed to the light, it's darkness. And we can come up with all kinds of philosophies and ideas about life. But men loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. They wanted to be justified in what they do. And we find this all the time. People want to do what they do, and they want to then justify that action, even if it's sinful, even if it hurts somebody else. Well, I did it because, and and we want to justify what we do. But in, in the end, it comes down to what's sin and what isn't. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. And that's why we don't like the light. That's why a lot of people don't like Christians, because if we are trying to live according to God's word, you might meet somebody who isn't, and they go, who are you to tell me that I have to live like this? I want to be able to make my own choices. And there you've got that personal freedom idea. Um, So how are they described? People who make up their own rules, want to do their own thing, in this passage are described as following darkness and following deeds that are evil. And so I'm just pointing out that the idea of personal freedom that the world has is opposed directly to, the, to what God um, tells us we should be like. Um, on top of that, um, and I mentioned this in the introduction, if you take it to its end and just look at the thing practically, we wouldn't be able to live in this world if everybody exercised ultimate personal freedom according to that definition. Um, What does it lead to? It inevitably leads to immorality. It inevitably leads to to oppression. One group of people um, trying to take advantage of another group of people because it fits their definition of personal freedom. Well, I want to exercise my personal freedom, and so if I happen to step on somebody else in doing it, I'm kind of simplifying it, then I will. Lawlessness. 
When people want to do their own thing, they do it outside the realm of the law. And when you, what if we just didn't want to drive on the right side of the road anymore? That's the law. I don't like the right. I'm left-handed. I'd rather drive on the left, so that's what I'm going to do. I'm colorblind, so I don't want to stop at a stoplight or a stop sign. I just want to go. Plus, I'm late. Everybody else should know. Life revolves around me. I'm, I'm late, so I'm going to... What happens if everybody just starts disobeying even something as simple as traffic laws? You, you, you can see what happens. It's destruction, eventual breakdown of any system. And also, as you look at it in the scriptures, this kind of freedom, which we call license, just the ability to do whatever we want, whenever we want, it really is slavery in its, in its purest form. Turn to, re, turn to uh, 2 Peter chapter 2. How many times have you seen this happen in the lives of people you know? I want to exercise my right to do what pleases me and what feels good to me, and before you know it, people are addicted to the very thing that they thought was going to bring them freedom. Parents tell their kids, don't drink. Well, I want to take that first drink. And what happens? They have some, they want more, and then it snowballs out of, out of control. And you can, you can apply that to multiple things in this world. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 10, is talking about those who indulge the flesh, especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority, Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesty. So the, the concept or the, the context here is talking about people who indulge the flesh. Jump down to verse 17. How does he describe them? Springs without water. They're dried up on the inside. Mists driven by a storm. They have nothing to anchor them to anything solid. They're just bouncing from, th- from place to place in life. For whom the black darkness has been reserved. There is no hope for them in the end. All they see is darkness. You've met people like that? They have no hope in this world. They thought that what was going to be so happy for them and and exercising their freedoms, it ends up like this. They're dried up inside. They're being pushed around. They're not in control of anything, and they have no hope. It just looks black in the future. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising themselves freedom. They think it's freedom, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. And so ultimately, when we take this definition of freedom to its end and talk about doing whatever we want to do, however we want to do it, without any consequence or without any obligation to a higher law, we end up back where we started. We end up as a slave to the thing that we thought was going to free us, and we don't realize it until it's too late. That's, that's the nature of sin. Sin is always destructive. It only leads to death and misery in the end. And so in order to experience true freedom, there has to be something that comes in to break that pattern and overcome sin. And there's only one thing that can do that, and that's what Paul was talking about in Galatians, and that's Christ. So what does God tell us that freedom really is? That's the world's definition of freedom, and I think we can see that it's, it's definitely not God's. Well, what is God's? What freedom is not, and we'll take this from Galatians 5.13, 
says, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. So freedom, according to a biblical definition, is never freedom to sin or do as we please. Those two are just opposite each other. And so we've got to get that out of our minds and turn to a different direction to find out what freedom really is. Um, The Galatians, like many of us, had tended to one of two extremes in their lives. And Paul deals with both of them in the book. On the one hand, some had reverted back to the slavery of the law. They'd been saved by Christ, but they went backward. And they went back to say, yes, I'm saved, but the only way I can really please God is by doing, 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 doing. And so they set up a whole list of laws, either on their own or according to the Old Testament law or some version of it, and say, in order for me to really please God, we have to do this. And then they were imposing that on everybody else saying, if you want to come to Christ, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to observe the days. You've got to go to temple. You've got to do this. And, you, and the whole list showed up. And Paul wrote Galatians 5, the first half of the book, verses 2 through 12, to address that problem of legalism. Legalism has its benefits, right? It's safe. If you set up a legalistic system in your own life and you say, well, here's my rules. I'm not going to, I'll do this, but I'll stop here. I will never do this, I will never do this, I will always do this, I will always do this, and this is a safe way to be. I'll set up my own regulations and my own rules to keep myself from going too far. But then we inevitably impose that on other people. Or we get a faulty view of God through it, thinking that God's going to punish us if we don't live up to it. That's legalism, that's where it ends. And so it has a benefit, I guess, in, in some way. It does produce some service, but generally it's not done in love. It's done out of fear. It's done out of duty. It's motivated by selfishness, and it can never produce true, true freedom. On the other hand, some had taken the opposite view, and Paul deals with that in the second half of the chapter, particularly in verses 13 and 14. The other extreme would be somebody who comes to Christ and finds this newfound freedom from sin and freedom from the law and says, well, hey, I'm forgiven. Every sin that I've ever committed is forgiven. Every sin that I'm committing now is forgiven. And the future, forgiven. That's a a ticket to do whatever I want. I can now indulge my flesh. And I don't have to worry about paying for it because Christ already paid for it. And Paul says, you're foolish to think that way. That's not what true freedom is either. And that's why he addresses it in verse 13. He says, you were called to freedom, but don't use your freedom to indulge your flesh as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another, for the law is fulfilled in one word, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul addresses both of those extremes. I want to take a look at two of those words in verse 13 to help amplify that and help us understand it. One of them is the word serve. At the, at the very end of verse 13, you'll see through love, serve one another um, you, you know the Greek word doulos, which is translated servant, bond servant, slave, and it's the, it's the root word for deacon, has the idea of serving uh, that's in there. This is the, uh, the verb form of that, duleo. I think we've done ourselves a disservice in um, emphasizing the word servant over slave, and I think part of that is because of our American understanding of what's happened in our country with slavery and the oppression of early American slavery, we automatically discount the whole idea of slavery as evil and and bad when, in fact, the word doulos 
is a much better translation of that word is the word slave, where we become slaves to each other. We become slaves of God, a bond slave of God, where we belong to him. Our rights are all wrapped up in him and in, in each other. And so duleo, to serve one another, literally means to do the duty of a slave, to perform the duty of a slave. And a little bit before that is the word opportunity. Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. The word opportunity, the Greek word is a forme, and it means a starting point or a base of operations. Okay, a, cent- a central thought, a central point. He says, don't use your freedom as a jumping off point to fulfill your own personal desires. You've got this freedom, but don't use it for that. Don't use it as an incentive for that. So the principle, our liberty or our freedom in Christ, must never be used as an excuse to do as we please to the detriment of others or to the breaking of God's law, period. But this presents a paradox, doesn't it? Here, God has called us from slavery and bondage. And what's he called us to? Slavery. And you say, what? Wait a minute. God's called us from slavery to slavery. Well, what's the difference? It's a huge difference. And it all depends on who you're a slave to. And this, this paradox, as you think about it, teaches us a lot of things. Slavery to one another and to God is completely and totally different than slavery to sin. They're not the same thing, and they have completely different ends, and the results are completely different. And you've got to think about this in terms of your freedom, okay? Slavery to the flesh or to legalism results in what? Death, misery, sorrow, and frustration. It's where it ends. Slavery to God and to one another, what does it result in? Life, blessing, joy, fulfillment, satisfaction. The total opposite of what slavery to sin brings. The world just gets it backwards. They think that total freedom to do whatever you want is going to bring what you can only find in Christ. And they find out the hard way that that doesn't work. Slavery to sin is involuntary. We start there. Every one of us who's born into this world is born a slave to sin. We can't really do anything about it. We're never neutral. It's degenerative. It's destructive to self and others. Slavery to the law, that's voluntary. We volunteer for that. If we want to live a legalistic life, we, we say, okay, this, we're going to think about it this way, and this is how we're going to do it. It's man choosing to save himself. It's foolish. It's burdensome. It carries a weight, and it doesn't end up with joy. Slavery to God is also voluntary, isn't it? God doesn't force anybody. That's a choice that he gives to us. We can follow God, or we can follow our sin. But slavery to God and to one another is a product of love, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and thus it becomes a source of glory for God, and it brings joy and peace and blessing to ourselves and to others. And so as you think about this paradox between slavery and slavery, it really helps open our eyes, I think, to what true freedom really is. So that brings us to the question, what is it? That's, you know, we looked at what freedom is not. What is freedom? Freedom, rather than the right to do as we please, it's the power to do as we should. Let me repeat that. Freedom in Christ, rather than the right to do what we please, is the power to do as we should. 
Rather than freedom from responsibility, it's freedom to make right choices within responsibility. It's the power to allow God, and in particular the Spirit of God, as we'll see in this chapter, to control your life. Uh, A simple illustration of this is a train. What do trains need to run? Tracks. Tracks are rather restricting, don't you think? They go in one direction. They go from point A to point B. And so the world comes along and says, hey, I'm a train. I'm a big diesel train. I've got power. I've, I've got, I want to go see the world. Hop off the track and go. What happens? The train can't run without the tracks. It can pretend to run, but it won't get very far. It'll get bogged down. It needs the tracks to run. So the train who says, okay, I want the freedom to be a train. I want to run the way that God made me to run and experience all the joy of having the wind rush through my hair and, and, and getting from point A to point B and carrying lots of load behind me and doing the things I was meant for, but i got to do it on the tracks. Which one is true freedom? One of them thinks they're free, but they're not. The other one has to be restricted, but they ultimately end up with true freedom and can go where they need to go. Galatians uh, 5.14 says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So freedom in the book of Galatians and really throughout the whole New Testament is expressed over and over and over again in terms of serving and loving one another. You can't disconnect those two thoughts. You have to connect them. If you want to experience true freedom, you've got to come to grips with the fact that your life is not about you, it's about other people. And as soon as you get there, you're going to experience the freedom that Christ gave to you. It's about loving God. It's about loving one another. Galatians 5.15. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. The opposite of freedom is expressed over and over again in terms of hurting one another or doing as we please with our own flesh. And so get that in your mind. True freedom is not just doing what you want. It's not hurting other people to get it. It's the opposite. It's loving and serving. Uh, Mark chapter 8, I won't go there, but Jesus in several different ways expressed this in terms of denying yourself, in terms of saving yourself by doing what? Submitting. By ranking yourself underneath somebody else. That's where true freedom comes. So how do we express this as Christians? We've looked at the world's definition of freedom. We've looked at what God's true definition of freedom is, which is serving and loving one another. What are some things that we can do practically to help us along in this thought? First, I've got seven of them. I'm going to go through them very quickly. First, beware that your concept of freedom doesn't tend toward what the world's concept is. I think that's a starting point. If we have it in our heads that freedom, true freedom, in this country or personally or however you look at it, is just me being able to do whatever I want, you're not going to get very far. Study this out. Make sure that your definition of freedom and your personal freedom comes from the scriptures and what it really should be rather than just going to a worldly definition or philosophy because obviously we've explained already in the end it's destruction. Two, to live in true freedom, be committed to serving. Be committed to serving, to serving God and to serving one another. That's where freedom lies. Galatians, we just looked at 13, 14, and 15. It says it explicitly. 
And it may seem counterintuitive to us to say, for me to be free, I have to serve. Yes, but that's true. The Word of God is full of paradoxes and contradictions like that that may not make sense on the surface. But as you delve into the depth of what that really means, you say, ah, this this is right. Submitting yourself to the idea of servanthood and slavery in love will result in what, what you think freedom should bring to you in the first place, blessing and joy in your own life. Thirdly, avoid biting and devouring one another. This will only result in being consumed by one another. What what do we mean by that? How do we bite each other? I mean, he's not physically talking about taking your teeth and sinking it into your neighbor's arm. What does he mean? What do we do when we bite and devour each other? One, this happens when we indulge in our flesh. Stop and think. When you take the opportunity to do something that you know is wrong, what happens to your relationship with another person? You feel guilty, you hide, you don't talk, you stop communicating, and it results in bad behavior between people. It always does. That's one way we can bite each other. It also happens when we exercise our liberty in Christ, and it becomes a stumbling block to the weaker brother. We're not going to get into that whole concept this morning, um, but he mentions it here in Galatians 5, he mentions it in Romans 14, he mentions it in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, where we can exercise a right to something we think we have the right to do, but in the end it affects another brother negatively and brings them down in their spiritual life. That's another way we can bite and devour one another. I'm going to exercise my right no matter what. I don't care. I have the right to do this. I'm free in Christ. And that produces a wall between brothers and sisters. And third, it happens when we go the other direction and become legalistic. We set up our own laws and we impose them on other people. And then other people say, hey, wait a minute. You don't have the right to tell me that. That's not right. And we, and we start fighting and we bite each other that way. And so there's plenty of ways. Avoid biting. Avoid devouring. Think of your salvation and freedom in terms of what God is teaching you in Galatians 5. Fourthly, Important, rest in the power of the Spirit. Just like you could not save yourself, it took an outside force to come in on your behalf in order for you to be saved. There's nothing you could do in and of yourselves to pay for your sin, which is why Christ had to come. The same is true as you walk in the Spirit. You can't do it on your own. You need the power of the Spirit as much to live for Christ as you did to come to Christ in the first place. Both are true which is why he emphasizes this in the last half of the chapter. Walk in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. Day by day, yield to the Spirit. Okay? Rest in the power of the Spirit. This is the secret to living the Christian life and your freedom in Christ. The Spirit of God gives us power to overcome sin. We can't do it on our own. The Spirit of God gives us the ability to love. Pastor John, Pastor John, whoo, Pastor Dan just finished John 15. And in there, he was talking about loving one another, as our response um, to Christ. And I remember one of his sermons dealt with the fact that we are unable to love one another on our own. We have to yield to the Spirit of God for that. And so we are to walk in the Spirit. It means to depend on him, to yield to him, which again is the opposite of what we think freedom is. To give him control, opposite of what we think freedom is. But that's necessary. And that has to happen moment by moment. And the result is that we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. We won't indulge in our flesh or hurt one another. 
five. Understand that this is a lifelong war. This is not going away. You come to Christ once, but you depend on him every moment of every day for your Christian life. And let me say this. If you struggle with this, then you're on the right path. Legalists don't struggle. They've got everything lined up the way they think it should be. They're feisty. People on the permissive end don't really struggle. But they're feisty too, aren't they? You have to do this. I have my right to do this. But if you struggle with it, how do I not indulge in my flesh when the desires are so strong? I want to lie about this, but I can't. I want to change this around, but it's unethical. I want to, you know, we get these struggles all the time between walking in the flesh and walking in the spirit. If you struggle with that, well, rejoice and celebrate because you're on the track. You're on the right track. And that struggle will never go away until we reach glory. A person who is daily yielding to the spirit will feel that struggle that tug, that war between the spirit and the flesh because they're opposed to one another. Uh, Galatians 5.17, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition one to another. Six, study and understand the difference between the lust of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. He, he lists it out. I'm not going to go through the lists again, but you look at them and you compare what it says to what you think and what you do. It's that simple. Immorality, sensuality, lying, carousing, drunkenness, those are, the, those are the lusts of the flesh. You can look at them as well as I can, and you can define them and, and see how they apply. But the fruit of the Spirit is the total opposite of that. The fruit of the Spirit is not about pleasing yourself. It's about pleasing God and others. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, patience, those are great things, and those come when we walk in the Spirit. Study and understand the difference between the two. It will help you as you're trying to walk. And last, understand your crucifixion with Christ. And we could spend a whole sermon on this. I'm not going to say much about it. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14 gets into it very clearly. Our position in Christ, which simply means when Christ died on the cross, when you placed your faith in him, you're identified with him to the point that you yourself were crucified in God's eyes. His crucifixion becomes yours. His death becomes yours. His resurrection becomes yours. You died with Christ. You, raised, you were raised with Christ. Now, therefore, walk in newness of life. And understanding that relationship really helps, too. And he says it down in verse 24 of Galatians 5. Now, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. So what do we do? Remember that the world's definition of freedom should not be ours. Big difference. Freedom is not license. Two, remember that for the Christian, true freedom comes from loving and serving one another, submitting to one another and submitting to God, not exercising our will and fulfilling the desires of our flesh. And thirdly, remember that the key to living this out is walking in the Spirit and understanding the difference between the fruit of the Spirit and the lusts of the flesh. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much that you have delivered us from sin through Christ. And I thank you that your power is ultimate power. You, can, you have the power to change a person from the inside out, to not only 
forgive his sin, but also to change him to become conformed to your image. Lord, I pray for us as believers in Christ that you would help us, even as we think about freedom over the next couple of days as we celebrate the 4th of July and the independence of our nation. Help us, Lord, to, uh, to contemplate these things, of what true freedom really means. Help us, Lord, to be biblical in our thinking. Don't let us get sucked into the philosophies of this world or this age. Help us to see the, uh, the difference between the world's idea of freedom and what you tell us freedom really is. Help us to love one another. Help us to serve one another and help us to live according to your spirit, to walk in the spirit, to yield to him day by day. And Lord, help us to glorify you in our lives as we think about ways to apply these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.